I want to apologize for uh, someone crying in the back row. Uh, it's my granddaughter. And she just found out that I've been giving it all away. And we're almost four billion in assets. So we've had a, we've had a great run. So to the benefit of the next generation, you would want your parents to convert their assets, retirement assets, to a rot. Welcome to Innovation Illuminated, a podcast where guest entrepreneurs and experts in their field of business share their experiences and knowledge learned through their journey in the business world. I'm your host, Hunter Pirak, and similar to these guests, I'm also an entrepreneur. Today, I am joined by Jim Marshall, who is an entrepreneur and the founder of Spectrum Investment Advisors. The company has grown into 23 employees and oversees just under $4 billion in client assets. Spectrum has a great reputation for company culture. It has been awarded the following press. Best places to work for financial advisors in 2023. Milwaukee's best and brightest companies to work for in 2023. Top Retirement Planning Service Provider in 2023, Milwaukee Business Journal's Best Place to Work For in 2022, among other various awards. So as you can see, they have a great company culture that Jim has built there. I talked with Jim about how this was all possible and how he created and continues to nurture a great work environment. Jim is currently serving in the role of Chairman and Ambassador at Spectrum and has recently become an author. Through this episode, we discuss how he created the business, gaining clients' trust, and investment accounts options for both self-employed and employed people, along with talking about his recently published book, The American Tailwind, that ties Warren Buffett, who is an absolute mogul in the investing world, if you didn't know. We talk about him, so you'll get to know him throughout the podcast too, Warren Buffett. We talk about in the book that he ties Warren Buffett into military stories shared from Spectrum Investment Advisors, employees, and relatives. I find that the investment world is super confusing and difficult to understand the terminology and whatnot of all these account names and stuff. So me and Jim really simplify it and break it down for the general listener to understand and comprehend what we're talking about. Please subscribe to us on Spotify and YouTube as that's a great way to support the podcast. And please leave a comment on YouTube as to who you'd like me to interview and what you're curious to learn from them. I will be reading all the comments. Thanks for tuning in to this episode, and I hope you enjoy Innovation Illuminated. Mr. Marshall, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this, and thanks for giving me a tour of the place, and it was super interesting to learn about all those warriors and stuff that you have upstairs regarding your book that we'll get to in a little bit. But you have a whole wall showing Warren Buffett's lifespan and all the connections to heroes and warriors in the American service through your company, all the employees, which is super cool to listen to. So let's start, take it back well, to the well, beginning. Thanks for having me on, Hunter. Yeah, and I'm excited to talk through fun. Spectrum. So let's start back at the beginning. Where did you start Spectrum and coming out of college? Where was your idea to start a business? If we take it back uh, to my childhood, I grew up on a dairy farm in central Wisconsin, a little town called Red Granite, Wisconsin. Uh, and I went to Oshkosh, uh, got a degree in economics, and I started in the retirement plan business when I was 22 years old. And um, I worked uh, with the Wisconsin Bankers Association, and I started calling on banks. 
uh, in Wisconsin and and servicing their servicing and selling their defined benefit uh, uh, pension plans. And uh, some of those banks that I worked with fifty years over fifty years ago are still our customers. Uh, so it our business has evolved since then. Uh, mm-hmm. So I started out uh, uh, selling and servicing defined benefit plans, which evolved into. 401ks and then our company was sold a couple of times and uh uh and then in uh, 27 years ago i started this company spectrum investment advisors and uh it was initially called uh, christensen investments and then we changed the name to spectrum investment advisors and uh it's grown into 24 employees uh and we're almost 4 billion in assets so we've had we've had a great run Wow. So you worked at a company before starting Spectrum in doing the same thing? Yes. Okay. Did you learn a lot from that job? I did. I did. Um, I almost got fired. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Can we talk about that? (laughs) (laughs) What happened? And and, um, um, when I was, uh, I was right off the farm and Mm -hmm. I'm selling retirement plans and health insurance plans. And my sales manager uh, said, uh, he went to the boss that hired me, and he says, you know what, Jim's not working out. Uh, he'll never make it in this business and because uh, he can't sell. And uh, and my, the, my boss that hired me said, let me think about it. So two weeks later, he fired my sales manager and kept me for 14 years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and and I think the, the, my, the, my, the difference maker for us is I took a Dale Carnegie sales course. Mm-hmm. Warren Buffett took a Dale Carnegie sales course, and I suggest anybody that's starting out that wants to get into sales and marketing, mm-hmm. uh, one of the first things they should do is take a Dale Carnegie sales course because it, re- it really helps you uh, communicate with uh, with customers. Uh, and, it's, and what they teach you is the art of listening. Even though my wife says you could be a better, I could be a better listener. <laughs> uh, I'm trying real hard. Uh-huh. Could do you do that online, or was it is it like an no? Actually, class? we did it. Uh, they still have Dell Carnegie sell, sells courses locally, so uh, okay. it took about a, a probably a dozen Dell Carnegie classes at night, okay. and uh, I can I can still remember those courses. Uh, it was uh, it was enlightening to take them. Huh. I learned a lot. Interesting. I never heard of them. I'll have to check them out, and I'll leave a dis- link in the description maybe to people. To Jordan learn more. Buffett, who we spent a lot of time uh, studying, uh, has a degree from the uh, Wharton, uh, not Wharton. Uh, but he went to Wharton. He has a mm-hmm. degree from the University of Nebraska. He has a degree from uh, uh, Columbia University. And he doesn't have any of those certificates on his wall. What he has on his wall is a, is a certificate from the Dale Carnegie sales course. Really? Yes. That's huh. what that's what's in his office. Because it was so important to him, yes. probably. Yes. It has such a profound effect. Yeah. Huh. What has been the hardest roadblock or challenge since you started the business? Um, lo- long term, it's finding good people. Uh, as it is for um, most companies, um, I think the other the other part is uh, it takes a long time to build a brand, uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's it's just kind of finding your way. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really kind of an evolution. Um, my son Jonathan, uh, sitting in the next office, has been working with us for over twenty years. And uh, he graduated from UW-La Crosse, majored in economics, and he got an a, a MBA from DePaul. And a year after he started, uh, he developed a, a color-coded patent, patented system 
using colors to communicate investing for our employees. Huh. And that made us different. And and I think that became part of our brand, which is why we changed our name to Spectrum. Uh, when it used to be Christensen Investments, but that didn't really connect to any brand. Mm-hmm. Spectrum does, as one of our customers said, uh, that the, the name Spectrum has got marketing mar- marketing written all over it. Right. And it certainly does. And we've been able to really use colors uh, in everything we do. Uh, if you look around our office, everything's colors. Our proposals are very colorful. Uh, even our even our book launch, there's mm-hmm. colors everywhere. And uh, I think colors... Colors is a universal is it's a universal uh, language mm-hmm. that no matter where you are, uh, even if you even if you don't understand English, you understand colors. So that was the core of what we tried to do. Huh? How did you patent? Do can you just patent a logo like that? Uh, we patented a system. Okay. And uh, using colors, and we had a couple of and it, and it took seven years to get the patent. So it, oh, it, wow, it, it wasn't uh, even that wasn't that easy to do. Uh, but it but it made us different, and it differentiated us uh, uh, with versus our comp, uh, versus our competitors, mm-hmm. and it's really helped us uh, grow uh, into a, a, a real a real stable advisory firm. Yeah, in here in Mequon, and it differentiates yourself too. I know, like I always think when I start a business or people starting a business should like pick a color or pick a font or something like something that makes them different. That's like unique to the brand. And you guys kind of did that. I feel like with the logo. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and a lot of it is, uh, is, uh, uh, answer the question, how are you different? Mm-hmm. How are you different than the next advisor that comes in? And, uh, and I think using colors helps people understand, uh, you know, every, every, people can, uh, people can maybe take in information, but they have to understand what they just took in, and using colors. It, it, our, our tagline is "Colors Simplify Investing." Yeah, and uh, using that, using colors, the art of colors, uh, people are able to understand it. And it doesn't matter what your education level is. You can have a law degree, or you can be a, a welder in a manufacturing firm. No matter what level you are, you you can understand it. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So it simplifies it because I know a lot of. Investment or especially advisors, so much is complex and the customers might find stuff like hard to understand. Right. So that kind of simplifies right. it. So rather than try and make something, uh, it's already complex, right? Yeah. Instead of making something complex, we try to make something that's complex, simple. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about, since we're talking about getting clients and making stuff, sim- making things simpler for them to understand, how do you gain the trust of a new client? Because I'd assume that it'd be like the biggest deciding factor when somebody's deciding what financial firm or advisor, investment advisor that they want to choose. How do you gain their trust? You know, p- part of it is is you have you have to earn the trust, mm-hmm. uh, and it takes time to earn it. Uh, and one of the things that we were uh, fortunate uh, to do is to um, we have been the advisor for the Wisconsin Institute of CPAs. A 401k plan for the last 30 years and we do a seminar we've done a seminar for close to 20 years with the Wisconsin Institute of, Institute of CPAs mm-hmm. and we have speakers from all over the country come in and do that seminar we that seminar usually gets about 250 to 300 uh, uh, attendees and uh, we bring in we bring in uh, an economist we bring in uh, a motivational speaker and uh, people look forward to the next year and mm-hmm. And I think doing things like that uh, is a way of earning people's trust. 
And part of the trust is we built this building 12 years ago. Because uh, I think when, when you're in the investment business, people will look at you and say, well, are you going to even be around in business in the next 10 years? Yeah. Well, we own this building. We built it uh, 12 years ago. And uh, so we're in this for the long haul. Mm -hmm. And uh, and part of our building, what helps our trust is uh, our tenant is the uh, Mequon Thiesville Chamber of Commerce on the end of the building. Oh, gotcha. So just j just being associated with the Chamber of Commerce in, in a town of 22,000 people uh, doesn't hurt you. And uh, we have we have our, our coffee house in the, in the front of our building. Uh, we've uh, hosted probably over 100 events in our coffee house. And a lot of them are Chamber of Commerce events, including a, a holiday party that we've done here 12 years in a row. Oh, wow. Okay. Going back to the trust, um, I wanted to ask a question about like starting the business. How did you, because it's easy to gain the trust of people once they see that you have this building and that you've been around for up to many years or how many years, how did you gain the trust? Like the first few customers, were they like friends and family or were, how did you get your first few customers to give, give you their money to start investing? You know, I, uh, and, it, it, and it comes back to, to the company that I started with, uh, 50 years ago, uh, uh, working with the Wisconsin Bankers Association. So, uh, we had at that time, we probably had 75 customers back then, banking customers. And when we, through the evolution of my career, we have been able to hang on to uh, close to 40 of those customers, 35 or 40 of those customers. And they've been with us for 35, 40, 50 years. Wow. And so I think, and it's all of financial institutions, and those financial institutions gave us gave us the core of our business, and uh, and I didn't initially sell them. Um, I serviced those accounts, and then I sold, and I eventually sold a, a, a quite a few plans since then. But mm -hmm. but that gave us that gave us the core, the starting place to build our business. Uh, and I think one of the things that that anybody when they're starting out is if whatever career you you pick, if you can parlay the initial year. Mm -hmm. So so we were able to parlay the the contacts that we had 50 years ago, uh, and we've got three or four of our customers that are on the the third and fourth and fifth uh, president, and we're still the advisor for these some of these companies. Huh. So we were able to year after year after year earn people's trust, and and from all those financial institutions, we were able to get into uh, professional organizations, attorneys, and so forth. Uh, we were able to get into manufacturing firms, but you have to start somewhere. And it and it basically started with the banks. And one of the things that we've done with the banks is uh, we sponsor a golf outing and have done that for 31 years at Trapper's Turn in Wisconsin Dells and where it's an, it's an appreciation golf outing. Hunter, you've been to that golf outing. Yeah, it's a lot and, of fun. Uh, so we get about 150 golfers. And part of being in the investment business is, is touching people a lot. Uh, and and I always call this a relationship business. It's in, it's investing, but it's also a relationship business, where people like as you talked about you talked about trust. People have to trust who they're working with. They have mm -hmm. to trust when they give people some when they give people some of their assets, family assets. They have to really trust them 
uh, to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. How do you continue to foster the relationship to continue it? I know you do the golf outing once a year, which is cool to get the banks involved or whatnot and sponsors and stuff. How do you continue to build trust and keep good relationships with clients? You know, it, uh, and that's a good question. Uh, what we have done is uh, when you start out in this business, I started out in a, in a commission world because that's what it was 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that involve, evolved uh, into an advisory fee world, world where we are a registered investment advisor with the SEC and we no longer charge commission on any product we have. Uh, so we, we charge an advisory fee uh, and we charge the, the fee in arrears. Uh, so we don't make money up front. Uh, everything we have to we have to earn earn it before we collect it, mm. and uh, so we charge a a small advisory trail. And in this business, when you when you convert to an advisory trail, it takes a long time to build a business. And unfortunately, my wife was a teacher, uh, so she provided the uh, uh, the supplemental income uh, while I was building the business. And, uh, but once, once you have, uh, economies of scale and today we have a uh, push in, well, right now we're at 3.75 billion in assets, mm -hmm. probably be 4 billion by the end of this year. Uh, we have, a, we have, a, we have, we have that critical mass. Uh, so charging an advisory fee, uh, is doable uh, so that it can support 24, 25 employees. Mm -hmm. Can you break down, um, the structure of an advisory fee? Because I, I don't know how complex that is. What's like the difference between, you said like somebody that's not registered with the SEC could charge like a standard commission. What's the difference between like an advisory fee and a commission-based? A commission-based is, is, is if you if you, uh, if you buy an annuity, mm -hmm. and we don't we can sell annuities, but we, we don't make a habit of selling annuities here. We have very few annuities that we offer. But the typical annuity uh, if, so if somebody retires, when they buy an annuity, they usually pay a commission of 4 or 5% up front. Up front, okay. And then in addition to that, they pay a 1% trail. So uh, like but, every year as yeah, it like gains year, interest? Yeah. Okay, then they pay and, the 1%. And, 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 uh, and then there might be even a, be a deferred sales charge. So then if they do leave, they have to pay a deferred sales charge to even get out of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's kind of how the business started. Uh, but uh, what we uh, what we wanted to do is stay ahead of the curve, and and basically pull pull out of a commission based uh, system and go to an advisory uh, fee system, and I think the beauty of an advisory fee is where uh, when when you pay somebody an advisor fee, and you uh, uh, don't have to lock yourself into something. We're just as easy to buy, but then we're just as easy to leave, uh, because if 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 customers leave us, uh, they don't have to pay any deferred sales charges or anything to leave. So knowing that they could leave, they stay. Okay. Uh, uh, and that's part of the trust. So is the advisory fee just like like the trail running? So like yeah. each year it'd be a percentage. Yeah. So, okay. And we, so we charge an advisory fee, uh, and we get paid on a quarterly basis. Gotcha. A small advisory fee. Uh, based on assets okay and uh, uh, and and we collect it like I say we collected in arrears so we so we collected uh, 90 after at the end of 90 days not at the front of 90 days mm, okay so uh, 
So we've done that now. Uh, we've been registered with the SEC for um, pushing uh, 50, 20 years, and uh, uh, and that's and it's actually worked out pretty well. So our only companies that use that advisory fee, they have to be registered with the SEC. Yes. Okay. Uh, they they could be registered with the state of Wisconsin. Okay. But uh, and that's usually advisories that, uh, advisory firms that have twenty five to a fifty million. But we're at almost four billion. Mm-hmm. So at at that level, you're no longer you no longer want to be registered with the state of Wisconsin. You want to be registered with the SEC. And we and we've had the SEC in our office. Uh, we've had the uh, SEC uh, review our 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 procedures and so forth. Okay. So they constantly they constantly monitor what's going on. What's going on? With any advisory firm, and they can, they can come in at a moment's notice. Huh. Uh, so we want to be ready for it. Right. Wow. And do it the right way. What's the process of getting like registered with the SEC? Uh, I think the best thing you can do is to is to have an uh, outside service okay. help you like do a third that. Party. And we use a third party called Vista Three Hundred and Sixty, and as well as uh, uh, legal firms. Uh, and uh, uh, but the Vista Three Hundred and Sixty specializes in compliance work for uh, uh, advisory firms and working with them. They gave us the they gave us the uh, uh, the track to run on to okay. re- register and do it correctly because they've done it before probably for yeah, previous for advisors. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. You have fifty years of experience in retirement planning. What are the best options for somebody that's self-employed? And then let's compare them to like somebody that's working at a corporation. So let's start with somebody that's self-employed. I know there's like you can use a Roth IRA, SEP IRA if you own a business. So let's start with the options for. A self-employed person, then we'll work over to versus like somebody that works at a corporation. So, what are like accounts for somebody that's self-employed? Yeah, if somebody that's self-employed, they can they can do a SEP IRA. Uh, um, that would probably be the the best route, mm-hmm. uh, and and then kind of build from there. Uh, in terms of options, um, I would say I would say ninety percent of our investment. Options. One of the options is the S and P five hundred, okay. uh, which is the top five hundred companies in the country, uh, and that's always a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, and then and then and then it, if you have roughly twenty five employees uh, or so in, in in that neighborhood, then we would suggest doing a four hundred one k plan, and the four hundred one k plan. Uh, uh, I think the advantage of a 401k is you offer uh, matching funds. The employer can offer matching funds so that, for example, if the employer, if an employee put in a uh, dollar, uh, the employer would match it maybe a quarter on a dollar or maybe 50 cents on a dollar, and that, which provides an incentives for uh, a participant to contribute. To plan to retire, uh, yeah. And, and, and that's kind of, and then what we do as an advisor then is to monitor, monitor, those assets for the employer, but then also provide communication services to the participant. Uh, so uh, we watch them. We basically monitor uh, monitor their investments, their investment choices. But I think we also provide um, a way to a sounding board for our customers, uh, so that uh, they don't they don't let their emotions get uh, get away from them. Mm-hmm. Especially when the markets get really turbulent, right? Uh, 
you know, the first thing, when the markets go down, the first thing the average participant wants to do is sell. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we say just the opposite. When the market goes down, uh, uh, historically, it's probably a pretty good time to buy, not to be selling, Which is right. which, but, but also means you have to have some cash on the side to do it. Hmm. Interesting. So you'd suggest like somebody that has 25 plus employees, that's when like a 401k would maybe come yeah. to play. Yeah. Okay. And setting that up, they'd come to like a, an advisor like yourself to set uh, up a 401k? In most cases, yes. Okay. Yes. And then you have an outside record keeper uh, that keeps track of the, uh, um, to keep tracks of the quarterly reporting and so forth and contributions and whatever. And they also act as a custodian. Uh, so everything we do here at Spectrum we don't collect any assets from any participant, whether it be an IRA or a 401k. All the assets are collected via custodian. Uh, and uh, in, in, in the custodian world, uh, one of the largest custodians is Charles Schwab, uh, and we've used them. Uh, and then in the 401k, there's probably 20 different record keepers that we've used Okay. Uh, to to maintain the records of a 401k plan gotcha so they're like an intermediary so you guys like use them to invest the money kind of thing yeah okay so yeah. charles schwab would be we, like we fidelity direct, we direct where the money goes mm-hmm. but then they actually do the investing gotcha okay okay and then what are some options for somebody that works at a corporation i know putting money in a 401k would probably be a good idea <coughs> what would be like i've never heard of profit sharing i don't know much about that what's what's that option um Generally, what, what customers will do is they have a, a 401k matching option, and that's kind of the core mm-hmm. of a 401k plan. So, and, and typically, uh, if an employee puts in 6%, uh, the, the company will come back and match it 50 cents on a dollar. Mm-hmm. So, if the employee puts in 6%, the employer would put in 3%. That's a typical matching program. But then, in addition to that, you also have a profit sharing program that you can add to that as a supplement to the 401k plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is based on the profits of the company. Uh, so at the end of the year, you can say, hey, we did pretty well. So let's kick in another three or 4%, or let's not do anything this year because we didn't make a profit or this profit was too small. But it's, it's a way to add an extra kicker to a 401k plan. Okay. And so a 401k, I, I need to understand this better. So, like, I thought the company had the 401k and you just have to like go to your company and be like, Hey, I want to contribute this. The 401k would be like here with you guys and the company would choose you. And so the customer would have to come here to contribute. Is that uh, kind of how it works? Actually, uh, the, uh, the customer, we go to the customer. Okay. So, uh, we, we, we service 401k plans in 33 States. Uh, and, uh, so we have roughly 160 some 401k plans and uh, 150 to 160 401k plans. So we will service all of those 401k plans on site. Uh, so uh, uh, the customers have the option to come here, but in 95% of the cases, we go to the customer. On wealth management, it's just, it's, it's, I would say most of our wealth management customers come to our office, but on the 401k side, we will go to them. Our, our largest customer is in Atlanta, Georgia. Really? Uh, so we'll fly down there and... Uh, visit with those customers with those that not only with the plan sponsor the employer but also the, the participant okay so if they want to contribute to a 401k they give you their money and then do you have to go to the company to get like the if they match it yeah so okay. we, we, so what we do is we we sit down with the with the investment committee of the company and uh develop a game plan okay okay what 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 custodian are we going to use what record keeper are we going to use uh this is a, a our suggested lineup of investments uh, are you okay with that? 
Uh, how about your matching funds? What are you going to do there? So it's, it's, it's really developing uh, a game plan for your retirement plan. But once we have that for, with, the, with, the, with the employer, from there, we go to the participants and communicate it to the participants. So we do employee meetings, and then we follow up with our employee meetings doing one-on-one investment advice for uh, as many participants as we can. Okay. So is it the same thing for those 401ks that there's an advisory fee associated with that? Or does the company just pay like an outside source, like an advisory, like yourself to come in and set up Uh, the 401k? In most most cases uh, on a 401k plan, uh, we collect an advisory fee, but it's usually paid out of plan assets. What does that mean? So so the plan sponsor once in a while, we'll have a few plan sponsors that will, the employer will actually pay the advisor fee. But in most cases, the advisory fee is paid paid out of the the four hundred one k plan assets themselves. Okay. So if you had a million dollars of assets in a four hundred one k plan, we would collect right from that million dollars and not have to build the uh, we build the plan, but we don't have to build the uh, plan sponsor. Okay, gotcha. And the plan sponsor gets a copy, but uh, but they know that it's being paid out of plan assets, which is probably. The case with ninety-five percent of our four hundred one k plans. Okay. Most, most of our most of our uh, our most of our most of our revenue is paid out of plan assets. Gotcha. So that's like yeah, where they'd pay it just straight out of the account. Yes. Gotcha. Would that be same for like a Roth IRA SEP IRA same uh, thing? In most cases, yes. Okay. And those are the, so Roth IRA SEP IRA. Just to kind of sum it up, best options for somebody that's like self-employed, doesn't have twenty-five plus employees, so they wouldn't want to offer a. 401k yet so those are like their two options yeah. to invest yeah and and, and uh the the roth uh, certainly uh you can and you can pro- provide you can buy a roth on the ira side as well as a, a 401k side uh, but but you lose the deduction when you work with a roth mm. so a lot depends on your cash flow if, if your cash flow can afford you not having the deduction uh, we highly recommend a roth uh but if your cash flow can't handle it then just go traditional what a lot of our customers do is, uh, especially on the 401k side, they'll put half of their money in a traditional uh, 401k plan where the, where the contribution is deductible and the other half into a Roth where the contribution isn't deductible. But the upside is when, when you uh, retire, you don't have to pay tax on the Roth portion because you, you already paid the tax up front. Mm-hmm. And is there a certain age that that is that like 55 for the Roth or 65? Uh, it can be any time. You can pull it out anytime without paying tax. Oh, oh okay. Pull, pulling it out of the Roth? Yeah. Uh, usually a Roth is uh, 55. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, we, uh, uh, or at, at least 10 years after you've contributed. Okay. Uh, but uh, I would say the Roth, uh, ideally for a Roth, you're, you're, whether, whether it's a traditional 401k or a Roth, the idea is to hold it to retirement, right, uh, and and not use it as a piggy bank. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I at first I thought that a Roth, like you had to wait until you're 55 to pull it out, but you could pull pull it out like a, as much as you contribute without a fee. Is that correct? But then like any of the interest on top, that's when you'd pay like a any interest that you've accrued or like gain that you've made in the account. That's what you pay the fee on top of. So you could pull it out like as a piggy bank. But uh, you technically wouldn't want to. You you uh, could, but you have to wait ten years to do it. Okay, so uh, ten years is like yeah. the cutoff point. Uh, but I would, I would not use a Roth as a piggy bank. Right. Uh, I think a Roth should be uh, more of a long term hold. Mm-hmm. 
and and what a, what our astute investors do is when they uh, retire, they will they will start converting a lot of their assets to a Roth, which means that their heirs don't have to pay the t the income tax. They've paid the income tax. So explain that again. My mind isn't comprehending so, it. <laughs> so we have some customers that. When they retire, they, they'll have a lot of money in, in, in a traditional 401k plan. Okay. And what they'll do is, over time, convert some of that money from uh, a traditional 401k plan to, or, to, or, or an IRA to a Roth. Okay. But when you, when, you, when you make that conversion, you have to pay tax in the next year. And so a lot of, of, of our... Customers that are more well-to-do, they they rather than for for their heirs to someday have to pay the income tax, mm -hmm. they will pay the income tax for them, uh, mm, so and that, leave that money for the next person for yeah for the next the beneficiary. Okay, yeah, huh? Interesting. I didn't think of it that way. So yeah, they're taking the hit up front, but then for their future generation, yeah. they're not going to have to pay the tax. Right. On so it. then for future, so uh, uh, so t to the benefit of the next generation. You would want your parents to convert their assets, retirement assets, to a Roth. To a Roth. Interesting. <laughs> and then they've paid the tax. I'm going to go home and tell them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> go home and tell your dad. Yeah. You have to convert it to a Roth. We have to convert now. Yeah. <laughs> we got to convert now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's convert it to a Roth now. I want the money. <laughs> uh, let's pivot into employees. So right now you have 22 people, I believe, correct? Working? Actually, 24. 24? Okay. I know... Uh, uh, no, I think it's 23 right now. 23? Yeah, right okay. Now. And so you've won Milwaukee's Best and Brightest Company for work in 2022. Investment News, Best Place to Work in 2023. Milwaukee Business Journal, Best Place to Work in 2022. How do you create a work environment or culture that's that well-known to be great for employees to work here? Uh, we make it fun. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think to... To develop any company, whether it be an advisory firm or manufacturing firm, I think one of the most important things, and Warren Buffett talks about this a lot, is is developing and maintaining the culture of a company. And the culture of a company, uh, and it's easier for us to do with twenty some employees, is that we we develop a family atmosphere. Uh, and and one of the things that we do is we celebrate the wins. Uh, so when someone makes uh, makes some when something major happens, uh, whether they win an award or maybe we made a big sale or something like this, we immediately like to celebrate that win. Mm -hmm. And uh, instead of going to the to the one of our employees and saying, "Well, okay, you did that. Now what are you going to do next year?" Yeah, um, which is kind of a downer statement. Mm -hmm. And rather than say that, hey, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate this win that we just had. And over time, if you keep doing that, uh, and we and we uh, sponsor a lot of uh, a lot of events, uh, company events, uh, which which includes our uh, our employees' families, um, I think it develops a a culture where people say, you know what, I really love working here, and uh, and I think part of that is to hire, as Warren Buffett says, hire well and manage little. And so one of the things that we try and do is uh, hire well in the first place and hire people that love what they do 
Because if they love what they do, we don't really have to manage them. They'll just do it themselves. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to, we don't have to micromanage people. And so, because we don't want to turn, uh, we don't want to turn our, our company into a concentration camp where we are uh, perpetually micromanaging what they do. Uh, we want to give them the freedom, freedom to go and be all they can be. So would you more so say that you lead them instead of manage them? Definitely. Okay. Uh, and, 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 and one of our favorite expressions is the speed of the boss, the speed of the team. And, uh, uh, I am now the chairman and, and ambassador, uh, and Manuel Rosado is our president and my son, John is our chief investment officer and Matt Dometa is our head of business development. So that's our trifecta that really runs this company. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they, all three of them lead by example. They really do. And they're all dedicated to what they do. And they, uh, Manuel's been here 18 years, John 20 years, Matt 10 years. So those guys have been here a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they really work as a team. And, uh, and, and, and our business starts at the top. And uh, their habits and work habits and so forth uh, uh, makes a lot of difference. Yeah, and kind of yeah, lead the employees to show them by example yeah. what to do is right. Yeah. Can you talk about your role as an ambassador? <laughs> and how, how would you say that, because uh, we, b- before we started the podcast, we talked about how everybody should re- like eventually become ambassador of their company af- after their CEO. What are the benefits of being an ambassador and how is it fun? Uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Um, my wife loves me, me being an ambassador because it gets me out of the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, and, and I think it, uh, being an ambassador, uh, then we have a weekend again, uh, mm-hmm. and not every day is Sunday. Yeah. And, um, so being an ambassador has allowed me to, uh, collect the fruits of, uh, of our labor over, over these years and, and taking the time to spend time with customers and enhance relationships, uh, be a part of our golf outing, part of our WICPA seminar, our leading uh, the singing at our holiday party at the, with the chamber, things like that. And it's also given us time for my son and I to write a book along with Kati Pavone and uh, uh, Cassandra Thompson, our associate editor. And uh, so we spent the last four years writing a book called The American Tailwind, which is a book right behind us. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we got it right behind Jim's head, and I got one right here, too, that we're going to talk about in a little bit here. And so that that kind of helped with your role as an ambassador then that you had the free time, or not free time, but time to work on a book yes. instead of being the CEO like yes. Manuel is. Would you, you probably wouldn't have had the time if you were a CEO. No, right? if, if, if I was still running this company full time, it would be very difficult to, uh, to have enough time to justify writing a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but being an ambas- in the ambassador role, it's allowed me to spend 80% of my time over the last four, uh, four years uh, writing the book. We wrote our book 28 times. That's crazy. And uh, we wrote it over and over and over again. And, uh, and how the book came about is uh, uh, we, John, my son John and I attended 18 Berkshire Hathaway Sherla meetings with Warren Buffett and, and uh, Charlie Munger, although Charlie Munger did pass away on the 28th of, no, of uh, November this year at 99 years old. He had turned 100 years old on January 1st. 
That's crazy. And he was Warren Buffett's partner for over 45 years. And that was your book signing day too, wasn't it? Or one so, of them? Charlie Munger died <clears throat> the day before our book signing. So our, uh. books, our book launch was on November 29th and 30th, and we had over 430 people attend our book launch uh, right next to our office at the uh, Foxtown uh, Station. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and at our book launch... Uh, uh, Angelica uh, Neiman was our, uh, our master of ceremonies and she, uh, she was in charge of, of basically putting together the book launch and uh, we, we started out the book launch singing the national anthem and we ended the book launch singing God Bless America with, mm-hmm. with flags a-waving uh, and uh, uh, we had Heather Mater from the Port Washington State Bank lead the singing uh, and we had the acuity flag uh, uh, blowing on, on the screen in the distance, which was pretty cool, with a flyover uh, right through the flag, which was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I was actually at the book signing, and it was super, like you said, patriotic. You guys had little sliders with the flags stuck in them, handed out flags, and everything was super patriotic, like Warren Buffett is. Yes, yeah. Warren Buffett is, uh, Warren Buffett, uh, is 93 years old, and... Uh, He's a fascinating man to study. Uh, and in going to 18 Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meetings, we uh, always did a, <coughs> excuse me, we always did a uh, newsletter. And over, over 18 years, we did 14 different newsletters. And we uh, collected uh, over 500 questions that were asked of 40,000 shareholders at the meeting of Warren and Buffett and Charlie Munger and what their answers were. So we took the, of those 500 questions, we took the top 150 and we put them in our book. And that's one of the core uh, sections of our book is uh, listening to answers from, uh, by Warren and Charlie of questions that shareholders would ask. And, and and they would ask about life as well as anything else. And uh, uh, one of my favorite all-time questions is, Mr. Buffett, what investment advice do we give our children? And uh, his answer was, tell them to marry well. <laughs> and, and tell them to marry up, and hopefully they're lucky enough to find somebody that's willing to marry down. <laughs> and, 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 and it's really good investment advice. And one of the other things he says is, uh, Read, read all you can, as much as you can, as early as you can, and what you've read. Take action on what you've read. And uh, so Warren Buffett is a big reader. Uh, he read all the books in the local public library by the time he was 11 years old. Hmm. Uh, and he, his dad was a stockbroker. Uh, so he is, he, he got, his dad got him in the, uh, in the investment business early on. He was, he was in his dad's brokerage office when he was seven or eight years old. Really? And that's kind of how he started. Wow. Huh. What goes on at those shareholder meetings uh, every year? Is it just shareholders? They get to ask questions. Is that kind of like the gist yes. of what goes on? Yeah. And, we, and you usually get about 600 people from foreign countries uh, at this event. So people from Europe and China and everywhere else are, are asking questions of Warren and Charlie. And all the questions are unrehearsed. Uh, the average Fortune 500 company, uh, they, uh, they usually rehearse the questions and rehearse the answers. With Charlie and Warren, fire away. Yeah, whatever, whatever you have. Uh, unfortunately, this year uh, Warren's going to really miss Charlie Munger, uh, and I'm sure they'll be, do a big tri- tribute of 
at this year's uh, Berkshire Hathaway event. We're gonna we've already uh, uh, reserved rooms to attend uh, the nineteenth our nineteenth consecutive Berkshire wow. Hathaway Charlotte meeting, which will this year will be without Charlie Munger. Yeah. Dang it. So is it invite only, or do you just buy tickets for this event? Uh, what you, you need to be a shareholder. Oh, a Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Okay. And, and then once you're a shareholder, uh, they'll uh, send you a, a, an application to attend, and you can you can buy up to or not buy. You can you can order up to four uh, passes to go to a, a, a Berkshire Hathaway Charlotte meeting. Okay. And what is Berkshire Hathaway? Is it kind of like an S and P 500 where they own a piece of a lot of the big companies? Berkshire Hathaway is a conglomerate of companies. Uh, Warren Buffett owns about 80 companies. Uh, uh, in as a, Berkshire Hathaway is the umbrella. Okay. And the umbrella owns about 80 companies. So they own Fruit of, Fruit of the Loom. They own Berkshire Hathaway Energy. They own uh, Burlington Northern Railroad. They own 6% of Apple. They own uh, Seas Candy mm. and so forth. And then he has, uh, in addition to that, he has a portfolio I think it's roughly roughly 350 billion of assets in a, a in an investment portfolio. Uh, That's crazy. <laughs> so yeah, so he's and he uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, what's interesting about Warren is is uh, everybody thinks well he probably inherited a lot of money from his father, and uh, Warren his father set up a savings account for him when he was six years old uh, with twenty dollars, <throat> and Warren Buffett. When he was seven years old, he read the book, uh, A Thousand Ways to Make a Thousand Dollars. And he, uh, uh, when he was eight years old, based on this book, he said, you know what? I need to get a job. So how many eight-year-olds, how many eight-year-old kids would say, I got to get a job? Not many, I don't think. <laughs> so he got a job of, uh, delivering newspapers, but then he would also do, he would create jobs. Um, and one of the jobs he created was uh, buying a six pack of Coke for a quarter for a quarter back then. Okay. And selling each bottle for a nickel. Which means okay, if you sold each bottle for a nickel, six bottles, that means you, you made a nickel mm-hmm. on every six pack of Coke. <clears throat> and he would take that nickel and put it in the bank. Huh. So he did that and he bought his first shares of stock uh when he was eleven years old. That's insane. Wow. <laughs> And he bought a uh, city service uh, stock with $114 uh, uh, about 90 days after Pearl Harbor. So he was an entrepreneur almost out of the gate or super. He was. Super devoted. And he was. Uh, and uh, and he always says uh, in his books, he writes, if if my father would have been a shoe salesman, I'd have probably sold shoes. But he said, I was fortunate enough that my father was a a, in, in the stockbroker business. So he oh, he was. It, yeah, he was a stockbroker. Okay. So Warren Buffett says in uh, in our book and in, in everything he writes, <clears throat> Warren Buffett says, the three reasons why I have been so fortunate is I had great parents, I had good health, and I was born in the United States of America. So when we, when we look at our book, that's the core of our book. Mm-hmm. So great parents. He said, I won the ovarian lottery. <laughs> yeah, and Warren Buffett uh, not only had great parents, but he had great grandparents. Uh, and it's not let, it's not that they gave him a lot of money, but they gave him uh, direction. Uh, when Warren Buffett uh, graduated from high school, he had so many event, business ventures going that he said, "You know what? 
He says, I don't think I need to go to college. I think I can just make it on my own. And, and his father says, no, absolutely not. You are going to college, and but you can, uh, he, he had, when, when he was in high school, he had accumulated $6,000. So that was in the, when you think about it, he had accumulated $6,000 in, in the early 1940s. That was a lot of money. And his father said, you keep the, you keep the 6,000, you keep investing that, and I'll pay for your education. So his father sent him to uh, Wharton, and then he went to University of Nebraska, got a degree from University of Nebraska, and then he went to Columbia and studied under Ben Graham uh, and got his MBA at Columbia. Uh, and Ben Graham taught him the margin of safety, taught him the art of value investing, and uh, and that really kind of gave him his start. And then he came back and, and uh, uh, started as a stockbroker with his father. And uh, when his, a couple of years before his father died, he says, uh, he says to his father, Howard, take me out of the will. Take me out of the family will. How many people would do that? Yeah. He had two sisters and, and, uh, and his mother. And he said, whatever, my, whatever portion of the money you are going to give me when you die, give it to my two sisters and my mother. And don't give me anything. <clears throat> other than a few pictures and things like that. Yeah. So that's what they did. He said, I can make it on my own. So when you think about it, Warren Buffett today is worth $110 billion. He started with $20. But mm. he has been incredibly, mm. and, and he said, <clears throat> he said he has allowed the magic of compound interest work for him all these years. But he said, in order to do that, you have to, it has to take years to do it. So he said, it's like a, he said, investing is like a snowball. The further you roll the snowball down the hill, the bigger it gets. Mm -hmm. He said, so what you need is really wet snow in a really long hill. <laughs> <coughs> That's a good analogy. Yeah, I guess once you get the ball rolling and you need to start somewhere, you're not going to be able to build a snowman if you don't start with a little ball. Right. He, he started with the twenty bucks. He started with twenty dollars, then and then he in person first investment was one hundred fourteen dollars, and then he, um, and then when he was in college, uh, he started working for Ben Graham, and Ben Graham was the chairman of Geico. So by the time he was a uh, senior in college, he had accumulated that six thousand dollars that he had, uh, became ten thousand, and he took seventy five percent of that ten thousand dollars and invested it in Geico stock. So when he was 22 years old, he got married to his wife, Susan. Mm -hmm. And Susan said, let's take the $10,000 and buy a house, which is kind of natural for a young couple. He says, no, uh, let me keep investing this and let's buy a house down the road. So six, seven years later, he did. But in six or seven years, he, uh, investing in Geico stock, that $10,000 grew to over three or four, it grew to three or 400,000. Wow, and he took ten percent of that money and bought a house for thirty-one thousand five hundred, with that he still lives in today. That's crazy. So he, Warren Buffett, has kept his living expenses really low. Does he have security and stuff at the house? Do you know? Because I feel like how could you still live at that house being himself as big as he, he is has, today? He has security okay. uh, all over the block. He has security in the whole block. Okay. Uh, so, but he, it's I've been by his house. It's an English Tudor house. Uh, very unassuming. Uh, I'm sure it's been remodeled a dozen times, but uh, he uh, 
he's not one to he's not one to invest in a lot of uh, fancy houses. Uh, he said, "I don't know if I would be any happier if I if I owned a dozen houses." Uh, what he's happiest, what he he is happy is is, is skip is he said I skipped to work. Um, and and he loves working at Berkshire Hathaway, which is only fourteen blocks from his house. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, he's done that his whole life, and he's happy. Very happy. That's all that matters. Yeah, who needs a big yeah, house very and happy. crazy car when you're happy, skipping yeah. to work every day? Yeah. And in the end, he's going to give away 95% of his assets. Huh. Uh, he uh, he told a joke 12 years ago. He told a joke at the, at his... Uh, it wasn't a joke. It was a, st- a story. And uh, he... Uh, as people, 40,000 people were walking in, he said... I want to apologize for uh, someone crying in the back row. Uh, it's my granddaughter, and she just found out that I've been giving it all away. <laughs> <laughs> That's how he started the meeting. That's how he started the meeting, okay. and the crowd just roared. I'll never forget it. <laughs> That's a good one. Oh, <laughs> They should have like pumped in like a screaming noise in the background right, or something. Right. It's like, oh my God, Grandpa, don't do that. You're giving it all away. Uh, but he, but he said, but but his belief is, give your kids enough to do anything, but not enough to do nothing. Ah. And and so if if your children, if if you if if your children end up inheriting too much money, they lose their incentive to uh, to grow themselves uh, and. Uh, uh, and and he's he's seen he's seen too many people that have been spoiled by way too much money. Yeah, and they're not happy. So yeah, and and what he talks about with money is because uh, uh, he and Charlie talk about that, and they're asked questions about this. Uh, can money? One of the questions that was asked is, can money uh, spoil children? And Charlie and Warren kind of answered it the same way. They said. You know, it's not the money that will spoil the children; it's the behavior of the parents. Mm-hmm. If your if your parents uh, uh, don't behave and live uh, maybe beyond their means and so forth like that, uh, that they become teachers to their children, and sometimes uh, in a in a negative way. So he's uh, 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 they're very uh, astute. On raising raising children, huh? And his his uh, in in our book we talk about he has he has three children he has two daughters and a son, and uh, one of uh, uh, and he never really let as the, as 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 the kids were growing up he never really let on what he did, and uh, his daughter Susan. Uh, she was in uh, fourth grade or something, and and her, her brother told this story. She was in the fourth grade, and her the teacher w- went around to all the kids and said, "What do you, what does your father do?" And at the time, her her father was a security uh, analyst, uh, so she didn't know what that was. So she said to the teacher, "My father is a security guard." <laughs> 
<laughs> security guard. Warned and, the security and, guard. And, uh, and she didn't know that he was anything different than that uh, until a newspaper recorder came to the door and started asking her questions about their father. And pretty soon the kids, the kids are going, holy cow, he's not a security guard. Yeah, he's a he's an entrepreneur investor, and they and, and, and instead of the reporter asking the questions to the to the kids, the kids were asking the questions to the reporter. What is my dad? <laughs> Tell me about my dad. I don't even know who my dad is. So, but but he's very assuming, unassuming. Right. Uh, still eats still eats at McDonald's uh, probably three days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and. Uh, uh, just a neat guy. Oh, just all, just an all-around neat guy. Be a great guy to have as a neighbor. Right. Yeah, and he's very, very frugal and good at saving. Like you said, that he made six thousand bucks, or he had six thousand bucks in college. Like yeah. a lot of people would spend that money. He yeah. saved it. He did. He made it and saved it. He did. Which is very important, I think. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll get into more of the book. Okay. Sounds good. I would like to take a quick minute to talk about this episode's innovative product. I'm big on saving time and money, and this product does just that. It's called the Easy Fade Clipper Guard. So instead of having to go to the barber shop and get a fade haircut whenever you want one, this guard, you can easily do a fade haircut at home. So normally how a fade haircut is done is that the barber goes from a one guard or a half guard up until probably like a three guard. So it's continually switching out guards to blend the hair into a fade. The Easy Fade Haircut Guard has eliminated this need and allows just one guard to do the fade haircut. For the audio listener, there's a ring on the side of the guard, and as you work your way up the head, you can slide the guard so that it extends it and cuts the hair at longer length as you go up the up the head. This is a super interesting product, and I've actually been using it for a while now, and it just makes it so much easier that you don't have to go to the barbershop and keep spending money and time on getting your hair cut when you can easily just do a fade haircut at home or do it on yourself with this guard. It just makes it so much easier. Check it out at easyfadeco.com and enter promo code innovationpodcast at checkout for 20% off your order. That is the letter E and letter Z, fadeco.com. And you can find the link in the description if you don't want to type that in to make it a little easier for you. Now back to this episode. All right, we're back from the break. Let's start. About, let's talk about the American Tailwind, the book that Jim and his son, John, actually wrote. Along with Kati Pavone. Yeah. yeah, which is super interesting. And what was kind of the writing process or who inspired you to write the book? You know, uh, it, it, like I said, I went back to uh, attending 18 Berkshire Hathaway Sherilyn meetings with Warren Buffett and developing all these answers to all these questions uh, that were asked of Cheryl, by Sherilyn's of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Uh, and then along with that, we... Uh, hired, uh, we gave a scholarship to Kati Pavone, who um, graduated from Germantown High School locally. And uh, uh, when the night of the scholarship, Kati asked me for a uh, an internship. And I said, yeah, I think we have something available for you. And uh, she ended up graduating summa cum laude from Loyola University, and oh. today works at Morningstar. Um, so uh, when I first, uh, the first day when she was here, I gave, him eight, I gave her an 800-page book called Snowball. Uh, and I said, read this. Uh, and it's basically Warren Buffett's life. And, uh, and when she did, she said, you know what? I think I could do a mural of Warren Buffett's life. And so we did. Uh, 
So that summer, she did a 33-foot-long mural of Lauren, Warren Buffett's life with, with the core of the, of the mural being, I had great parents, I had good health, and I was born in the United States of America. So he was born in, on August 30th, 1930. Uh, so that's the, for the front part of the mural. And, and the last part of the mural is uh, we write, we write uh, that the two most coveted words in, in business today is sincerely warned. Hmm. And uh, so it's it's kind of like this is your life, Warren Buffett. So in the book, we have a picture of the mural, 33-foot-long mural, and then we chopped up the mural into a 10 to 15-year segments, and then we kind of talk about his life huh. when, when he met Charlie Munger, when he went to, uh, when he went to uh, Columbia University, when he met his wife Susan, things like that. And... Uh, um, and then along with that, so now we had a mural, and uh, six years ago, my son Jonathan married Laura Needler, and the morning of the wedding, I'm talking to Laura's father, Jack, at, at the, uh, uh, at the uh, uh, hotel in uh, La Crosse, and he started telling me about the Needler family that came over in the 1600s. And seven of them fought in the Revolutionary War, and six of them fought in the Civil War, and a bunch of them fought in World War One, World War Two, and and I'm filling out napkins, and I'm going, "Holy cow, this is really good information." Yeah. And so, so after John married Laura, I'm thinking, I said to John, I said, "You know what? Uh, Laura's family uh, uh, is is so interesting. Uh, we should do, uh, we should frame." her story so we did so we did uh, seven uh, seven frames of pictures of her family from from the revolutionary war all the way to world war ii and laura today and her sister jenny are members of the dar daughters of the american revolution and when my brother ron saw that he goes you know what uh now that you've done this for laura and her family and which was basically 20 uh, stories of 20 soldiers my brother Ron says, why don't you do this for all your employees at Spectrum? Mm. So we, uh, we opened it up three years ago. We, op we opened this, this whole thing up to uh, all of our employees, our 20-some employees. So they did. So everybody raided the cardboard box in the attic. So everybody has a cardboard box in the attic, uh, especially if uh, it had to do with uh, any soldiers in a family's life. You, can't, you never throw that... That information away is kind of store medals and newspaper articles and whatever in some some cardboard box. So everybody pulled out their cardboard boxes, and so what we did is John and I with Kati developed uh, sixty stories of sixty soldiers related to our employees from the Revolutionary War to Afghanistan, and we uh, framed each story. Uh, and uh, uh, once we had all those frames on the wall, um, Chris and Mary Domes uh, came in, and they're a long-term long customer of ours and good friends. And Chris is the president of Newman University in Philadelphia. And so they were looking at the Warren Buffett uh, wall along with all the soldiers, and they both looked at me and said, Jim, you should write a book. And that was four years ago. And I said, John? Let's write a book. So we did uh, with Kati, with Kati Pavone's help and, and also Cassandra Thompson. 
And we had a few other people from uh, our company that were involved in various internships through the, through, through the years that helped us with the book. Uh, so it took four years to write the book. Uh, it, it took, we wrote the book 28 times, and it was over and over and over again. And uh, we had uh, we, we selected a publisher, uh, uh, Kristen Mitchell, from Little Creek, Little Creek Publishing. Mm-hmm. And Kristen, uh, when, when we were almost done with the book, I said, Kristen, what do you think of this book? And she said... I read 200 manuscripts a year. I reject 90% of those manuscripts because most people write about themselves and frankly, it's not that interesting. Mm -hmm. She says, so I only publish about 15 or 20 books a year, but I only really get excited about one or two books a year. And yours is, of the two books this year, yours is one of them. Wow. And I would say, uh, not only has she been excited about our book, but she continues to, be excited about our book, and we've actually. Uh, uh, I think I think our book cover has has gotten some uh, uh, good mileage, and uh, we have applied for a Ben Franklin Award for our book cover. Uh, but our book cover includes the American flag. Mm-hmm. So uh, so part of part of what we did is we went to Acuity in Sheboygan, uh, and Acuity in Sheboygan has a. Uh, their office is right on I-43, and they have they have a flag with a 400-foot flagpole, and uh, and the flag is 100 uh, 170 feet long and, and 140 feet long and 70 feet wide, and uh, we went we went to Acuity and said we would like to uh, put a photo of your flag, a mural of your flag in our office, and uh, so we went up there four times. And they they gave us approval to do it, and they and they the only thing they suggested is that if you're going to come up and take a photo of our flag, you have to get a tour of our office before you do it. <laughs> so, so, uh, so they uh, uh, Paul Miller from Acuity uh, helped us uh, uh, photo our flag, and so mm-hmm. we actually sent a photographer photographer up there four times, uh, and so the flag was the photo of the flag that we took was in the middle of October at about a 40 mile an hour wind to get the flag to stretch out. Oh. And so so that flag, uh, the mural of our flag is in our office. It's an 11 by 18 long flag. So the core of that flag is, is all over our book. It's on the front cover, it's on the back cover, it's in the book, it's in the mural, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we didn't wanna just use any old American flag. We wanted to use Acuity's flag, which they call the largest symbol of freedom. So that's what's on the cover here. That's their flag. That's that, that. On the cover of this book is is a photo of Acuity's American flag. Huh. Wow. Interesting. How do you tie in Warren Buffett to like the military stories and the American flag and everything together? Okay. You know that's and that's another great question. Uh, uh, like we said in the book earlier, uh, Warren Buffett says the three things I why I've been so fortunate is I had great parents, I had good health, and I was born in the United States of America. And so, he, being born in the United States of America, Warren Buffett had had his, an, an incredible appreciation for the United States military. His uh, one of his favorite expressions is the American tailwind, which is the uh, uh, the name of our book. And Warren Buffett came up with the, the name American Tailwind in, in 2018, uh, which was real close to the 75th anniversary of D-Day. 
Mm. And he's and Warren Buffett says, our nation has been riding the American tailwind. Mm. And uh, the American tailwind being uh, just just the, the overall strength of America, uh, that we have two oceans that protect us. We have an abundance of natural resources. We have uh, 340 million people that are, the core of our, 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 our society is basically immigrants from all over the, all over the world. Right. And it's a collection of, of what I would say aggressive people. Because uh, if they weren't aggressive, they would have never got on a boat and come across, come, come, <laughs> right, come, come yeah. across the ocean. Yeah. So, so I think their nature was more aggressive. And so I think the offspring of those people, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, the offspring of those people have, have had aggressive tendencies to start companies and, and, and build a business and so forth. Huh. So, uh, but, so who protects that American tailwind? Our United States military. Mm-hmm. With, with, no matter how long our ocean, wide our oceans are on both sides of our country, somebody has to protect the American tailwind, and our United States military has done that. So Warren Buffett has a tremendous uh, appreciation for the military, and he often reflects on the on the uh, on the crosses at uh, at Omaha Beach uh, at the American Cemetery. Mm-hmm. He said, "That's who you have to thank for where you are today. No matter no matter how uh, how strong a business you built, no matter how much money you have." It's those it's those soldiers that have that have, that have uh, offered the ultimate sacrifice to 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 protect our country, and that's and that's that's why that's why we we connected the soldiers uh, to the Warren Buffett story. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, and and you own an advisor firm, so you, so Warren Buffett's in the investing world. He's a patriot or supports the military, and now you got all these military stories in the background that yes. are close to you, and then everything ties together, kind Every, of. And everything ties together. So what our what our American Tailwind book has is, I think that it has something for everybody. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if you're into, into into investing, we have Warren Buffett. If you're into the military, we have sixty stories of the military. If you're into history, uh, we have. Uh, sh- three story stories of st- short stories of George Washington, Ulysses Grant, and George Patton. Wow! And I was at your book signing too, and you had, I believe, it was the grandson of Patton. Was that yes. correct? We had Pat Waters uh, speak at our event. Uh, he is the grandson of George Patton, That's and crazy. he had his uh, his grandfather's combat boots from World War II uh, on a podium next to him as he was speaking at our book launch. And he told some crazy stories about it. And he too. told some crazy stories yeah. about his his grandfather. Are those shared in the book, some of them too? Some of the stories about Patton or no? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's, wow. there's probably 25 stories about George Patton in the book. And it's crazy where we're sitting right now with this too. Can you talk about the backdrop a little bit? And the, and the backdrop is, uh, uh, if you look out the window right behind me, you see St. Paul's Fish Market. Mm-hmm. And Nina Luck from the Jonathan Clark House, um, her grandfather that 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 used to be a cannery owned by Fram Foods, and uh, her grandfather used to be the uh, supervisor at that cannery, and when George Patton uh, beat Rommel in the in the uh, North Africa, all those prisoners. Uh, Rommel's prisoners were sent back to the U.S. because England, England didn't want any more prisoners. They had enough prisoners. So the prisoners were sent back to uh, the U.S. Uh, 
they were they were shipped to Texas and then they were sprinkled all over the country, and we added we ended up with like thirty camps that had Rommel's prisoners, uh, in the state of Wisconsin, in two camps that were local. It was one was at uh, Mitchell Field, the other one was at Rock, Rockford, Rockfield uh, near Germantown between Germantown and Mequon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the bottom line is, uh, twelve of those Rommel's prisoners worked at the cannery across the street, which is today St. Paul's Fish Market. So when Mequon developed uh, the n- development with Cindy Schaefer across the street, uh, uh, it's the St. Paul's Fish Market is really a historical building because some of Ra- Rommel's prisoners worked at the St. Paul's Fish Market building, uh, which, is a, 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 which is a great story for the city mm-hmm. of Mequon. How crazy is that? When did you find out about that recently? Uh, actually, uh, Nina Look did a uh, did a manuscript, and she gave me a copy of her manuscript uh, as we were writing the book. In, in fact, we we write about that story in our book. Huh. For the audio listener, it's like a building that's out back of Jim right now. It's yeah. just a brick, tall building, and it used to be a cannery and. POWs yeah. worked at which, it, which today serves great fish. Yeah, right. Really, really good fish. Yeah, yeah. totally. How how much in or how much like documents and research did you have that went into the book? I know you showed me like the cardboard box bin. That was that's just a compilation of like everything that you studied, and you cite a lot of the stuff in the book. Correct, all yes. of it's cited in yeah, the book. Yeah, we, we have about six hundred and eighty citations with page numbers, uh, but our, our, between Warren Buffett and the soldiers, we use a, a, a collection of one hundred and three books. Wow, and uh, and we read them with highlighters. Uh, so, so, so we got 103 books in our office, uh, that are just full of highlighters, uh, and, and to the, as to the, as to the, you know, the important points of each book. So it was a compilation of the cardboard box and interviewing mm-hmm. our employees along with reading, uh, the resource from 103 books, uh, and putting all that together, which is why, it, which is why it took four years. I would say anybody that's wanting to write a book especially if it's going to be a quality book, it's going to probably take you about four years to write the book. That seems to be the average of writing a book. Okay. And you really have to be dedicated to get to, get to the finish line. And, and, uh, and I want to credit Cassandra Thompson, uh, who, uh, who graduated summa cum laude from, from uh, UWM, and she's full-time in our office and she's our, she was our associate editor, and she really helped us get to the finish line. Uh, if she didn't come aboard, we may have still be writing a book. So we were able to get it done. Kudos to her, yeah. She helped with a lot of the citations you were yes. saying and stuff. And I'm sure that took a lot of time because you wanted to validate and make sure that the reader knows where they could go find this information yes. and fact check it and stuff yes. like that. I'd like to know what's your most interesting or your favorite story about somebody from the military is that you put in the book what's the most interesting or most intriguing to yourself i would say it probably is you reuben chetzel uh and reuben chetzel was a uh uh from germantown wisconsin he grew up on a farm in germantown and he was an mp in england and three weeks before d-day his commander said, Reuben, uh, where are you from? Germantown, Wisconsin. Uh, what'd you do in Germantown? I grew up on a farm. Did you drive a tractor? He says, yep. Then you're going to drive a tank. <laughs> so so Reuben went from being an MP to being a tank driver like in three weeks. And so he 
was there there was 80 some tanks uh at D-Day that day and he was one of the uh, the uh uh tank driver the Sherman tank drivers mm-hmm. that drove off the the ships and uh uh in Reuben Reuben is one of the uh one of uh, there's a uh historical society in Madison and Reuben was selected as one of the 50 top stories of Wisconsin soldiers about World War II. And uh, so we, we took a lot of excerpts from that, uh, from that book. And he, he really gives a lot of details on the morning of June 6th on D-Day at Omaha Beach. And he said, when I looked at the beach, it was solid red. And the tracers were coming at us. And he said, I was in, he said, I was just in awe. He was, says, I was scared out of my mind, but I was also in awe of what I was seeing. So when he drove his tank off the ship, a German rocket. And so he, as a tank driver, he was, he was down below, but his crew was up on top. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, as he drove off the tank off the ship, a German rocket hit the turret of the tank and killed his crew instantly and but he was able to he got blown out of the tank and he swam to shore he waited four or five hours for the d-day battle to get done and they they took the bluffs uh in a half track picked him up with other tank drivers and they took him up to the top of the bluff three or four days later he's in his second tank and a month later he's driving through the hedgerows of germany and out comes a German with a Blunzerfuss, which is a, today, a, a bazooka, mm-hmm. and shoots the turret of his tank again and kills his crew again oh my in the second tank. So he survived that. So it was, it was, it was, a, it was roadside. And uh, so he was, just after the, the rocket hit, a American officer came, c- comes up with a jeep. Mm-hmm. And he jumps out of his tank and says, soldier, what's going on here? He says, General, take a look for yourself. That general was George Patton. Really? And Reuben got to know George Patton uh, from that day forward. And I think Reuben was George Patton's kind of guy <laughs> because here he, here, here he got blown up in two tanks, and now he got into his third tank, and he was headed to Bastogne. And on his way to his Bastogne at the Battle of the Bulge, he ran out of gas, so he ended up in the infantry uh, because George Patton drove – his uh, third army, a uh, uh, hundred miles in th- in three days, and a lot of those tanks ran out of gas. They ran wow. out of fuel, so he in- finished into infantry, but survived the war. And got and, and after the war, got to know George Patton's grandson because he would they would go back to reunions and so forth, which is a connection. George Patton's grandson is Pat Waters, the one mm-hmm. that spoke at our event. So if I had my number one story in the book, is Reuben Chetzel. That's a crazy story. While you were talking, I was like trying to envision it, and I can't even imagine what it looked like. Oh, getting on the beach and stuff, and just the experiences that he had are unbelievable. Yes, yes, uh, not even it's, comprehensible. Yeah, almost. it's it's my favorite story in the book, and I've and I and I've read that story over and over and over again, uh, and and it's a true story. Uh-huh. Uh, he didn't stretch it. It's just exactly it's, it's exactly what happened. It's but true. he survived. Yeah, which is unbelievable. And he just kept going. And he just kept going. Another tank. Another, another tank. tank yeah. Another tank. <laughs> he didn't insane. quit. He didn't get yeah. scared. He just kept going. Just kept getting into another tank and kept so going. So he was George Patton's kind of soldier. Right. Yeah. Crazy. Where can somebody And he was get from there? Germantown, Wisconsin. Right from right here, too. Yeah. How crazy is that? 
Every, everything just ties back in together and the book kind of ties it all together too, which is cool. Yeah. Where can somebody get the book? Uh, you can get it at our office. Uh, if you if you come to our office in Mequon, uh, you can actually get a signed copy. Uh, and uh, who signed the copy is uh, myself, my son Jonathan, Kati Pavone, and also Pat Waters. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, have signed the books. Or you can order the book through our publisher. Then uh, the website is theamericantailwind.com. Okay, Either I'll leave way. a link for that in the yep. description. Yeah, the book sells for $35. Okay, yeah, it's a sweet coffee table book too. Good, good yep. size and good read and fun read too, especially if somebody's interested. And like you said, so many topics, investing, Warren Buffett, history, military. There's so many different things that it kind of covers, yep. which is cool. Let's get into the speed cast now. Okay. So we're going to do each question. You're going to have a minute to answer. We're just going to try to like speed them up so they're gonna be quick quick questions quick answers so yeah take a sip of water quick so yeah, we, take a sip of water yes yeah, so and then we're ready to rock here so yeah we're just gonna to try to do this quick and then i have one final question that we'll slow it down for at yeah. the end okay. but five questions five minutes we'll start with this what is the best investment account for somebody who is self-employed i would say the s&p 500 okay best thing for them to invest in would be s&p yeah awesome what is your favorite hobby golf golfing okay what's your best score on that Second question. What's my best score? Yeah, best score in golf. <laughs> uh, 80, 80, 87. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mediocre golfer, but I enjoy the sport. There we go. All right. Next question. What is the largest percentage gain that you've exited on a trade that you can recall? Uh, I actually bought Apple for myself and uh, I made a, about a 40% return. Wow. Okay. Awesome. What is the most important trait to have as a business owner? Drive, 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 and uh, and, and focus. Hmm. Okay, what is an event that you look forward to every year? Our our Spectrum Investor Golf Outing at Trapper's Turn in the Dells. Awesome. All right, now we'll slow which, it down. Which includes which includes my wife and her friends and uh, uh, a lot of our good customers. And it's it's not it's more than a golf outing. It's a it's a reunion. Right. Yeah. And a good, good, good. Yeah. Like you said, reunion, it ties everybody in together yes. and gets everybody together for, yes. for some fun. We'll slow it down here. What advice do you have for a younger new entrepreneur? I would say ideally, uh, get an education. And I think, and I think that, uh, Warren Buffett's father had a lot to do with Warren Buffett's success because Warren Buffett did not want to go to college. Mm-hmm. And Warren Buffett's father said, "No, you are going to college." And I think, I think getting a college degree is ideal because it, it opens up a lot of doors. Uh, and then once you have a degree, I think from that point is uh, I think the next thing I would do is if I were a young person, I would take the Dale Carnegie Sales Course to learn people skills. Mm-hmm. And then once you have that. From that point on, it's your drive and your passion that'll get you there. And and I think, as Warren Buffett says, ultimately, uh, whatever you do, you have to love it. If you don't love what you do, then find something else that you do love. Uh, and and I have, I I've been in this business for fifty five years. I have truly loved this business. Awesome. Uh, I I I never feel like I've really gone to work because I, I I I as. As, as Warren would say, you skip to work every day, mm-hmm. and and to, and to wrap my career up as an ambassador, which has given me the freedom to travel, uh, is pretty cool. And uh, 
And uh, we, uh, we have two children. Uh, my son John's in this business. Uh, our daughter Cindy works for, uh, works for TD Ameritrade, which is now Charles Schwab in Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, uh, so I've been able to spend time with our family. Uh, we have four grandchildren, and uh, it's been a beautiful life. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge and experiences with us. Okay, thank you, Hunter. Thanks, Jim.